Hey there, this is Chris Flasto, host of the Investigation Podcast. We're going on hiatus, but don't worry. We'll be sure to come back with updates and new investigative reporting. So be sure to stay subscribed to this feed. In the meantime, we wanted to tell you about Start Here, the daily news podcast from ABC News. Every morning, Start Here gets you ready for your day with insightful, straightforward reporting on a few of the biggest stories of the day, including some of the investigations we've talked about on this podcast. So right now, we're going to play you today's episode. And if you like what you hear, search for Start Here and hit subscribe. It's Thursday, August 1st. Joe Biden was better prepared, but so were his rivals. We start here. When you're in the center, the attacks come from all sides. Um, Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, But Biden wasn't the only one facing incoming here. We'll take you to the voices and the issues that drove the day. President Trump gets his wish. Well, part of it. Part of that also makes prices go higher. The last time the Fed cut rates was the Great Recession. Why it's happening again now. And we condemn people overseas over child brides. So how does this happen in America? Did they take you aside to say, are you sure you want to do this? No No one. We're seeing this across the country in 2019, and it's largely legal. We'll take you inside a year-long investigation. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. When CNN introduced the second batch of candidates in their Democratic debate last night, the frontrunner Joe Biden came walking out on stage. And suddenly you realized for the first time since the last debate, Joe Biden is about to be alone on stage with the woman who knocked him back on his heels a month ago. Senator Kamala Harris. And as Kamala Harris approached, you could hear him say... Go easy on me, kid. Go easy on me, kid. But as the debate got underway, you realized Kamala Harris was not the only opponent Joe Biden needed to worry about. Mr. Vice President, you didn't answer my question. What did you mean when you said when a woman works outside the home, it's resulting in, quote, the deterioration of family? No, you want to compare records. And frankly, I'm shocked that you do. Uh, I am happy to do that. Mr. Vice President. Tell us what did you do to try and spur on the Justice Department Thank to you. act Thank you, in Mayor. the Garner Thank case. you, Mayor de Blasio. And this is going to happen uh, when you're at the top. The question is, how would he handle it? Let's go to the Fox Theater in Detroit right now, where ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks was watching it all. And so, Mary Alice, I mean, Biden supporters said he needed a good night. Did he give it to them? Senator Kamala Harris clearly did not take it easy. No one did. Several of those Democrats on stage made a point of attacking Joe Biden's record. This is one of those instances where the house was set on fire and you claimed responsibility for those laws. Still a little slower on the uptake that I bet some of his fans and supporters would have liked. Or did you go to the president and say, this is a mistake, we shouldn't do it? Which one? I was vice president. I am not the president. I keep my recommendation in private. But I'm not sure that the pylon buried him. There were two of the most segregated school districts in the country, in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. And she did not, I didn't see a single solitary time she brought a case against them to desegregate them. Secondly, he had a much better night than he did in Miami. He punched back at one point, even joking by the end of the night. (laughs) I love your affection for me. You spent a lot of time with me. You know what? (laughs) And that was really the theme of the night. In the end, I think it's possible that, that Joe Biden started to benefit from what looked like a layering of attacks on his record. 
Well, and so we knew that Joe Biden was expecting to be attacked. Kamala Harris is now with him kind of in this top tier of candidates, right? Did she get kamala last night? <laughs> a little bit. I was uh, surprised that Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard seemed to kind of Kamala, Kamala Harris. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She brought up Kamala Harris's past. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought. There was definitely a sense that Kamala Harris had a target on her back. And so that meant that her record was fair game. Well, and you touch on criminal justice. I feel like health care is also just the number one difference you're seeing among these candidates, right? So you've got people like Joe Biden that want to tweak Obamacare. You've got the Sanders and Warren crowd touting Medicare for all. And then you've got people like Kamala Harris who are kind of advocating this middle road. Mary Alice, you're like the healthcare policy queen at ABC. I dare you. Can you break down what this whole debate is about in 60 seconds? Go. It's a debate about how much government should be involved in giving out health care and whether there's a place for for-profit private companies to be involved at all. Bernie Sanders is making essentially a moral argument that for-profit companies should not have a place in distributing health care, that no one should make a profit over health care, and instead the government should give out everyone's health insurance. His idea is that the government, like they currently do with Medicare, would be your health care provider and that you would pick your doctor in your hospital. Now, obviously, that's tricky because that's a lot of government. That's a lot of government, and people don't always trust bigger government. And there's a lot of doctors and hospitals that say under current rates, Medicare doesn't pay enough to make the, the whole system work. Uh, Joe Biden is saying that you could use government as basically a foil to private companies, a government option to be another possible choice for consumers. Was that under 60 seconds? No. <laughs> I think that was pretty good. Wait, but wait, let me ask you then, if someone does want to see Medicare for all, and you got people like Kamala Harris saying, let's do Medicare for all after a while, or Medicare for those who want it, what's the problem with that? Senator Kamala Harris is really taking a tax on her plan from both sides of the Democratic Party right now. Progressives like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren say that the fact that she thinks there's still a role for private companies to give out Medicare-style plans is essentially an oxymoron. And to be very blunt and to be very straightforward, you can't beat President Trump with double talk on this plan. And then someone like uh, Joe Biden is basically saying, you're trying to have it both ways. You want to call your plan Medicare for all and still have the government take on an enormous amount of risk, tons of patients, millions of patients, and that that would cost trillions of dollars. It doesn't make sense for us to take away insurance from half the people in this room and and put huge taxes on almost everybody in this room. So I think right now she's kind of stuck in the middle. People are having a hard time um, understanding how her plan would work uh, economically, and they're having a hard time understanding where the, where the value system is. Well, so then at the end of this, Mary Alice, two debates down, 20 candidates just went at it. What did it get them? Like, where does this leave us? There's people in that middle tier, like Senator Cory Booker, that I think accomplished what they came to do. Um, Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, you, need to, you need to come to the city of Newark and see the reforms that we put in place. You know, Cory Booker was able to land some jabs at Joe Biden, talk about himself as a leader uh, in the black community. I think he had a strong night. We'll have to see if it was a strong enough night. He wrote an op-ed was that he believed that uh, women working outside the home would, quote, create the deterioration of family. 
and someone like Kirsten um, Gillibrand, who again trying to distinguish herself as someone on a very specific issue. She wants to be seen as as the candidate who understands women's issues better than anyone else. So under Vice President Biden's analysis, am I serving in Congress, resulting in the deterioration of the family because I had access to quality, affordable daycare? I just want to know what he meant when he said that. And so she has to see now if the voters will respond to that. The two of them made their case, and they now need a very quick bump at the polls. Yeah, and you could feel that desperation kind of creeping in as these candidates just ended up kind of begging people to go to their websites and donate. The big question, though, might be whoever wins this nomination, is this field weakening them as we go along? Mary Alice Parks in Detroit. Thanks for breaking it down. Thanks, Brad. The last time the Federal Reserve decided to cut interest rates was when this was happening. This has truly been a manic Monday on Wall Street. There's the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, the sale of Merrill Lynch to Bank of America, and word of trouble with the world's largest insurance company, American International Group. It was 2008. The economy was falling apart before our eyes. This was one of the few things the government could do to help out businesses and consumers and people who were just terrified of borrowing money right then. Since then, things have gotten um, much better. We decided today to lower the target for the federal funds rate by a quarter of a percentage point. But yesterday, for the first time in more than a decade, the Federal Reserve announced they were pulling that ripcord once again, or at least gently tugging on it. ABC's chief business and economics correspondent Rebecca Jarvis joins us now. And Rebecca, I feel like I make people's eyes glaze over every time I mention the Federal Reserve. I, I did it again. Help me. What are these rate cuts? Why do we care? First of all, everyone should care what happens with interest rates because it determines what you're going to pay to buy a house, a car, to expand your business, even in some cases your student loans. And the Federal Reserve has a lot to do with what happens to them. You call it quantitative easing. With us, we have a Fed that does quantitative tightening and they raise interest rates. President Trump had been calling for an interest rate cut for months. He said he was looking for a big one to help businesses. But then all of a sudden, the Fed announces it's cutting rates and the stock market plummets. Right. What happened? Look, here's the thing. The president would love to see lower interest rates because lower interest rates means it's cheaper for people to borrow and that can help the economy. We could have had it much more except for the Federal Reserve. And we could have been five to 10,000 points higher in the Dow. But the Federal Reserve has two objectives, to make sure they're maximizing employment, but at the same time, they have to keep prices stable. Because if they made borrowing so cheap that people could go out and get any loan and buy anything tomorrow, prices potentially would skyrocket. That's the problem. That's what I was going to ask, Rebecca. Like, if President Trump and businesses like rates being low all the time, like, why not just do that all the time? Like, why do we... (laughs) I don't need to make banks extra money. Sure. And, I mean, for anybody who's a saver, the savers will say, well, we would like higher interest rates because anybody who's had their money sitting in a bank account or in a CD are getting paid pretty much nothing to keep it in the Mm. bank. By by keeping rates low, it does help stimulate the economy. But part of that also makes prices go higher. So at the end of the day, then, was this the Fed saying, hey, President Trump's right, we should kind of juice the economy a little bit here? Or is it them seeing bigger problems down the road that that we're not hearing about so much from the White House? 
Well, the Fed is totally independent, so they're not even responding to what President Trump is saying. And what the Fed said is that overall, things are looking strong. However, inflation prices are still looking a little damp, and they do see, as they look to the future, a couple of unknowns. It is intended to ensure against downside risks from weak global growth and trade policy uncertainty. But Fed Chair Powell didn't say anything about being afraid of the U.S. economy or the shape that it's in. He just wanted to give himself the space to make a move in the future. In the meantime, President Trump responding, saying he wished that this had been the signal for a lot of rate cuts in the future. Powell says, you're not getting that. You're getting this one right now. Uh, Rebecca Jarvis, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, for the last decade, another bin Laden has been on the loose. Well, now U.S. officials say he's gone, too. The U.S. made a lot of world headlines yesterday. One, in this big escalation with Iran, the White House announced it's sanctioning the country's foreign minister. That's a big step. Two, the president announced he will head to Poland again, which has become increasingly nationalist. We've seen violence against immigrants, against LGBTQ people. But while the White House made these announcements in public, it stayed silent about this growing rumor that the son of Osama bin Laden had been killed. We begin tonight with the breaking news. ABC News confirming reports that the son of Osama bin Laden is believed to be dead. Well, last night, government officials confirmed this news to ABC. We're joined now by our foreign correspondent, James Longman. And so, James, what do we know about Hamza bin Laden? Well, in truth, not very much. Uh, We know that he was about 30 years old um, and that he could have been killed sometime over the last two years. Uh, ABC News understands that it's unclear where exactly he was killed, but that American intelligence certainly played a role in the operation. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. There were papers found in the Abbottabad raid. Uh, Do you remember that raid in Pakistan where Osama bin Laden was found by SEAL Team 6? Papers there that showed um, that uh, Hamza was trying to reunite with his father. Letters there um, from Hamza. But at the time, he wasn't at the compound. Another son was and he was killed. But Hamza remained at large. And then he kind of became a terrorist in his own right. Hamza bin Laden has promised revenge. Releasing audio and video messages on the Internet calling for attacks against America and the West. He issued uh, uh, kind of uh, remarks on wanting to launch violent jihad in his native Saudi Arabia. The State Department offering a $1 million reward for help tracking him down. And yet, James, we've heard analysts say, yeah, he wasn't exactly al-Qaeda's number two, right? He was more of a a name. So where does this leave the U.S. in the war on terror? I mean, we're still in Afghanistan. Yeah, right. Because I don't think you can underestimate the power of name recognition. Bin Laden, there is no greater name in the kind of terrorist universe. And he was being used really to pull younger members, younger recruits into the organization, into al-Qaeda. I have plans on Afghanistan that if I wanted to win that war, Afghanistan would be wiped off the face of the earth. It would be gone. It would be over in 
literally in 10 days. So, I mean, Afghanistan has become this fascinating place where you have the Taliban, where the United States has been engaged in what Donald Trump has called this endless war, who seem to want to start to talk. And they've been engaged in this kind of long-term negotiation with the United States just this week. Uh, the US chief negotiator has been in Afghanistan there. He's been tweeting that he wants to head to Qatar for more talks with the Taliban. But then at the same time, you have ISIS, which has spread from uh, Syria and Iraq down into Afghanistan, has been able to recruit people, disgruntled members of the Taliban who don't want to start having conversations with the Americans. So just because uh, one leader of al-Qaeda has been killed, it doesn't mean that other very, very powerful uh, terrorist organizations aren't any less of a threat elsewhere. And it's such a 21st century thing that even terror groups have a brand online and analysts say this might have been a blow to the brand of some of these groups. James, with the context, thanks so much. Thank you. When you hear the phrase child bride, you might think about some creepy trafficking system in a developing country somewhere. Young girls sent off to be with older, predatory, deep-pocketed men. But over the last year, ABC's Nightline has been investigating a disturbing fact. There are child brides across the United States of America. Some of them are young as 11 years old. And in many cases, this is all perfectly legal. And ABC's Jasmine Brown has been researching this now for over a year. She's been traveling across the country, interviewing people who have seen this up close. And Jasmine, I mean, I got to admit... I had no idea this was as widespread a thing as it is. And this is not like, you're not talking about 17-year-olds marrying 18-year-olds here. No, in most cases, what we found is that it is, in fact, an older man, most oftentimes with a younger girl. And how did you guys meet? On the school bus. On the school bus. We've been on the ground talking to these young women who were, in many instances, forced into a marriage. In the fifth grade and coming home and had to wash diapers out in the tub. Very much too young. How? How how does that play out? Yeah. So in many cases, what winds up happening is that um, a young girl is impregnated by an older man. Mm. The way the laws are on the books is that you can skirt statutory rape charges by marrying someone. So someone who would be otherwise a sex offender for um, raping a young girl, you marry them and it's all fine. Who's the first person you told that you thought you might be? Him. Him. And what was his reaction? I think he was, like, scared and nervous. That's what I was. So we met this young woman, um, Ashley Duncan. She is in, lives in a rural area of Missouri. And she was 15 years old, a freshman at the time, and she wound up pregnant by her 18-year-old boyfriend. At the time, um, she now knows now that she thought that in Missouri, because he was 18, that he would have gone to jail. So she is just living her life, going on the school bus. My aunt, she got on the bus not long after I did and said, come on, get off the bus, you're going to go get married. And for Ashley, she literally started that day as a student and ended this day as a bride. Everything changed. I wasn't me anymore. I had a whole different last name. Yeah. My teachers were getting confused. Kids were, like, picking at me because my name was different and... Oh, so these are not kids that are abducted or something. Like, the family might know about it. So every family, it, it's different. But in the case of Ashley, she actually says that her aunt was the one who encouraged her into this situation. Um, and we actually spoke with her aunt. And her aunt now says that she regrets this decision. She herself was married at the age of 15. And she says that in her family, 
everyone was married young. So I, the hard part about this story is that it is legal. Um, so there is technically on the books nothing wrong. In what, like in certain states? So it's legal in 48 of the 50 states with exceptions. 48 states? Yes. So that means that depending on the state, you need either the approval of the judge or the parental guardian. In some states, you need the judge and the parental guardian. Um, in some states, you don't even need the judge. A clerk can sign off. Did anyone ask you anything at the courthouse? Did they take you aside to say, are you sure you want to do this? No. No one. Well, so I, I get well, that there yeah. are people who say, you know, culturally, getting married young is is something that happens here. But, I mean, you're pointing out two things here. One, many of these begin with a case of statutory rape, like before there's ever a marriage. Two, some of these children are not even in high school yet. And I think what is hard to grasp is that how can a child legally get married and yet prior to that they have no agency whatsoever? Um, So we spoke to an activist, Frady Reese, with Unchain at Last, and what she told us is that her hands are tied. So if a young girl were to reach out to her and say, I don't want to be in this marriage— there is nothing they can do. Oh, because your parents control your life Correct. before you're 18. So that's kidnapping. If she were to go in to take that child, she could be charged with kidnapping. So you go from belonging to your parents legally to now being in a marriage that has its own legal entanglements. Exactly. The crazy thing is that President Obama, when he was um, in office, went and gave a speech in Kenya and said that there is There's no, no place in-, in civilized society for the early or forced marriage of children. It's happening here on our own soil. Wow. And, and so these advocates you spoke to said in a 15-year period, they found out that 200,000 children were married in the U.S. Now that some of these women have been speaking out, we know other states are taking steps. Florida has raised their marriage age to 17 years old. Jasmine Brown, thanks so much. Thank you. And one last thing, I want to take you on a wild journey that has captivated and confused the music world over the last few months. I'm very glad that I'm able to be here 50 years later uh, celebrating it. You see, once upon a time in January, there was supposed to be this thing called Woodstock 50, right? This was supposed to be a tribute to the original outdoor concert. It would just have fancy glamping tents. Then the organizer announced it would not be at Woodstock, but hopefully nearby in New York. In the meantime, we got a lineup that promised to be this truly once-in-a-generation event. All different genres. Jay-Z, Halsey, Chance the Rapper, the Black Keys, even old-schoolers like Santana and Grateful Dead members. And then, you guessed it, the red flags arrived. Managers started complaining their artists hadn't been paid up front. Bands started to drop out. The big ticket release gets postponed. Someone tell Jay-Z Woodstock 50, it's back on. Despite all this, the organizers insist, this is still happening, we promise. When reporters say, um, you haven't gotten approval from the state health department, they say, no problem. When finance dries up, they say, don't worry about it. When the host town yanks its permit, they say, hey, who cares? We'll do this in Maryland, even though on the big night, their venue is booked by another act. You know, there is a person in that situation who's a scammer, and he's always been a scammer. Well, yesterday, Woodstock 50 finally waved the white flag, saying the festival was canceled because of unforeseen setbacks. Who knows? This could all still happen, but by then it just might be Woodstock 51. 
know, you guys, between this and the Fire Festival, I'm starting to think putting together these huge concerts for thousands might be kind of hard. I don't know. Start here tomorrow. Just hit subscribe. More moments from last night's debate, of course, at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.